Welcome to Soul Talk, soulful conversations exploring who you are, why you're here, and how to live your most authentic life. My name is Coop Blackson, nationally best-selling author of You Are The One, transformational teacher, and your host. I invite you to subscribe to the Soul Talk podcast for weekly inspiration from me, where I will share with you some powerful ideas, thoughts, and practical life wisdom to help you live life more fully, freeing yourself from your past, reclaiming your power, and living your true life's purpose. You can also go to www.coopblackson.com, enter your name and email to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment. Let's get started with Soul Talk. Welcome, folks. Welcome to another very special episode of the Soul Talk podcast. Uh, Today's episode, uh, I feel, is going to be an amazing one. Uh, I'm excited, at least. I get to interview someone I have long, long respected, as some of you know. Uh, As a kid, I was obsessed with self-help books and read everything from the motivational gurus to Eastern mystics. And um, I came across a book when I was a kid. I think it was a little over my head for for being a kid, but uh, it it definitely caught my attention. Um, You probably know the book uh, and you're going to get to meet the author. The book is Codependent No More. She is uh, the author is a pioneering voice in self-help and personal growth. Uh, before the, the interview started, I was telling her in my eyes, she's like a legend to me. So I am really excited and honored that she is uh, coming on to Soul Talk and going to share some of her wisdom with you. Um, she is, a, as I was saying, a pioneering voice in the self-help movement and recovery movement, an author of many best-selling books, also including The Language of Letting Go, Playing It by Heart, The Grief Club, Beyond Codependency. Um, the amazing Melody Beatty. Welcome. I hope I can live up to that. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I'm thrilled, you know, for me, honestly, it's, it's, a, it's a thrill to have you on. Um, there's so much I actually want to ask you on many different levels, even about writing books, even about what it was like as we started talking about, you know, uh, promoting a book back then. We'll get to that. But um, for those that also may not know you, I'm curious, like, how did, how did the, the self-help personal development like how did you get onto the path was was I'm, I'm curious to find out people's origins was there a moment as a child was there a moment in your teens what 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 inspired the the pursuit of knowledge i wanted to be a writer from the time i was four five or six mm. i i would i would sit at the kitchen table with a pencil and paper and take notes but i was always writing true stories until my mother freaked out and said, no, you can't do that. You can't mm-hmm. talk about that. Mm. So I put it on hold for a while. I was the youngest person to work on the school newspaper. My desire wasn't to write. I, I did, you know, finding our path as a writer is kind of start and stops. We think we're going to write about one thing, and but we have a path as a mm. writer. And so finding my path I mean, and it's not for me, it wasn't an easy one. I mean, I didn't go home to my office as a writer and say, oh, I think I'm going to write a book about codependency. Right. You know, <laughs> that, that idea emerged from deep inside and it emerged the hard way. I um, mm. I went to treatment for chemical dependency in 1973. Mm. And 
I was there for eight months. When I got out, they, um, I wanted to help people. I mean, I wanted to help people the way treatment had helped me. And so I thought I wanted to be a counselor. I thought mm. that was a good place to start. I went to the University of Minnesota to get my degree as a counselor. And I also married a man and his family had started most of the treatment in Minnesota. I mean, many of the treatment programs he and his brothers have, had started. So I got a job working at a huge therapeutic community in Minneapolis. And um, I mean, it, it was a good start. It was hard for women to get mm -hmm. jobs counseling back then. I mean, on that end of it, wow. it was hard for women to get really jobs doing much other than secretary and, you know, the traditional jobs women were supposed to have back in the 70s. Mm. And then one day my husband and the person running the treatment center called me in and they said, we just heard from our funders that if we want our funding to continue, we must offer something for the families. And my heart sunk. I mean, I pictured myself counseling a group filled with my mother. Mm, wow. <laughs> uh, and I, I, I said, I don't know what to do with them. They said, well, uh -huh. neither do we, and you're new here. That's why you get the job. So I was thrown into this. And then an amazing process started to happen. Mm. Uh, you know the way we have of denying what's really going on in our yeah. lives? Yeah. Okay, so that was going on in my marriage. While I was sitting in this group of women, and they were mostly women back then, and I kept hearing these women telling my story. Telling your story. Telling my, it, at first it was like, well, how could they be like this? But right. then once I looked beyond the differences between me and them, I went, I'm going through the same thing. My husband is lying to me. He's running around. He's doing things. And I, I've got two babies at home. I, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't talk about my issues in the group. That would have been inappropriate but I started hearing about this thing that had happened to me. Mm. And I tried so hard to find out about it, mm. but there weren't any books, all the books out. We didn't even have self-help sections back then in the bookstores. Mm. Um, Games People Play was a book that had, you know, sparked the self-help and recovery movement, but we didn't have those sections. Mm. But even at the bookstores, I couldn't find anything helpful mm -hmm. to family members. And then I went to an, to an Al-Anon meeting and that helped. It got me into my heart. You know, I started crying. I started figuring out my sadness, but they still didn't talk about all the nuances of this. How did I get into this? How did I start doing this thing right. we call codependency? And more importantly, how do I get out of it? Mm. So... I spent the next five years researching through the process of my life, the answers to all those questions. And in 1985-86, I finally got a publisher to agree to publish this book I wanted to write. And I sat down to write Codependent No More. Wow. That's, I had written another book. I had written someone else's story before that. It, mm -hmm. uh, it was called A Promise of Sanity. She, was, she had, was suffering from schizophrenia. 
And I thought, well, I mean, you, you hope when you write a book that it's going to do really well. That book sold 900 copies, and I split it with the woman I wrote the book about. So when I sat down to write Codependent No More, I thought, if this, you know, I had learned by then not to base anything about me, my self-esteem, my desire to write a book, my passion for it on anything but my desire to write that book. Mm. And I thought, well, if this sells 900 copies, I'll have done my job. Wow. And so I wrote the book. And then you want to hear the exciting writers part of the story? Yeah, please. <laughs> I, I had uh, I, I went to the welfare department. I was a single parent with two kids and I had been wow. working at the paper and I, I couldn't afford to keep the family going and not be making any money. And the publisher had just given me a $500 advance for the book, which wouldn't even make the house payment for one month. But wow. I was afraid to spend it because I thought, well, what if I can't deliver? I'm not, <laughs> I'm not gonna spend this check until I know I've done the work. So I turned the book in and I didn't hear much from the publisher. And then about 30 days later, they said, you know, 60 days later, they said the first printing sold out. But by then I was out looking for a job again. I was trying to, I had two kids, they were six and eight. And I was very busy with the day-to-day -day of life. They invited me to come out to Los Angeles or not Los mm -hmm. Angeles. It was mm -hmm. Las Vegas for the um, ABA. Have you heard of that? That's mm, the, the, book uh, association. The, the book associations, huge gathering mm. that they have once a year. And so I traveled from Minnesota out to Las Vegas. I made my way to the entrance to that. My suitcase was, you know, I, I had, I came right from the airport. I had my suitcase and they started in on me about, oh, you need to be wearing your badge. Where's your badge? Blah, 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 all of that. So I'm standing at the doorway to the ABA, digging through my underwear in my suitcase, <laughs> looking for my badge. And my editor ran up to me from ins inside and she said, Melody, did you hear? I said, hear what? She said, Codependent No More hit the New York Times bestseller list. And wow. I, I know. And but I only had a couple of minutes because I had to walk all over there and then get to side checks. But that was my short yet very glorious moment as wow. a writer. So you didn't, I, have, you didn't have in the beginning that much expectation for the book or, or, or have any sense that this was going to be, did you have a sense this might be, or just was, you just put it out there and. A little bit. My, the, the acquisitions editor, literally, computers had just come out when I started writing that book. Mm. And as a writer, the computer gave me this delicious ability to tinker and edit endlessly. Mm. And plus, I don't know, there was something about this book. I was scared to turn it in. I thought this is either absolute insane gibberish mm. or it's life changing. Mm. And so I, I kept telling the acquisitions editor, Terry Spahn, I kept saying, you know, I just want to tinker with it for a few more days. Mm -hmm. And he finally called and he said, I am coming and I am picking up that manuscript. And I still held it in my hand, <laughs> had to rest it away from me. So I think there was a part of me that suspected this might be life changing, but I didn't want to entertain those ideas. Mm. Back then, I had decided if I'm going to write a book, write it because I have a great passion 
yes. for the idea, not because yes. I think it's going to be this great thing of mm-hmm. hubris or bluster, mm-hmm. but because in my heart, it's what mm-hmm. I want to say, what I feel I need to say. Mm-hmm. So I was very grounded in writing it. Um, mm-hmm. It's It's been a blessing. Yeah. It's been a great blessing to me and from what I hear from the people who read it too. Yes. On the other hand, what, 36 years have gone by. Wow. And looking at that book now, while while the main content looks good, the backdrop looks like when you're looking through a school yearbook from 30 mm. years ago and you do mm. that cringing thing, mm. you know, like if your biggest goal is to get a waterbed, you know, mm. I mean, our world has changed so much since yes. then. And yes. even the examples in it, mm. there were no references to social media because we didn't have social media back then. Mm. Um, it was a different place. So mm. that's why I've done the upgrade and the revision on it. Beautiful. And because there was one thing in the book I didn't have consciousness of back then. And that was PTSD and this extreme anxiety mm. that mm. so many people with codependency issues have. Mm. Before and, we go into that a bit more, okay. just for those listening, could you like clarify and, and just, I don't know, define like what is codependency? Because somebody listening might, might to this conversation, they might be thinking, well, I'm, I, that, that doesn't, that, that it's not relevant to me. I'm not codependent. I, I, it's just, I don't want to hear about this. And so could you just sort of like. You know, I feel the same way. I, I still feel stigma <laughs> from claiming right? myself to be a codependent. Oh, it yeah. sounds like. It sounds so, so what is, what is codependency and, 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 and like, how does it look? How do you know if you might be codependent in some way? How does it show up? I've, I've shortened my definition of it a little bit okay. since writing the book. And the way I explain it now is it's people who consistently love others more than they love themselves. That's mm-hmm. it. People who consistently love others more than they love themselves. To the detriment of the other people and themselves. Mm. Makes you think now. <laughs> Making me think. <laughs> wow. it, um, and ironically, the cure, if you're going to call it a cure for codependency, yeah. is the same as the cure for anxiety and PTSD. It's learning to embrace, settle into, and love ourselves, who we are, mm. making our home in here. Mm. And trusting it's a good place to have a home. Before we go there, the definition of codependency is interesting. You know, consistently loving others more than you love yourself. Is is there a line? Is there a distinction, discernment? Because, you know, even in the spiritual um, field, right, there's this talk of like, Love your neighbor as yourself. Love as love, lo- as as well, as but not like, more. Like, like 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 love others. You know, serve others. Mm-hmm. You know, get off of yourself. And so, uh, so many of the you know, Gandhi and Jesus, and they they seem to sacrifice themselves in a certain sense for the good 
the greater good. Is that, could you speak about that? Is, 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 is there any codependency in there or like? How, how, well, how, I don't think Yeshua is codependent. Yeah, no. Right. <laughs> he, if you watched stories about his life, the way he's portrayed is he was actually very healthily loving himself around other people. Mm. You know, he would say, what do you want from me? Why do you want it? Mm. Mm. Um, he had good boundaries. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I don't think his ultimate path, or at least the journey was very pleasant for him. I mean, he went through a lot of pain, but yeah. sometimes life sucks. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't see anywhere in the Bible or any other spiritual book that says we should hurt ourselves loving others. Yeah. Why do we hurt ourselves? Why? Well, we know we, many of us, we know we shouldn't, right? But, but yet we do. And so what is this uh, tendency, this pattern? Like, why do we hurt ourselves? Well, I was listening um, this morning to your podcast on rejection. Mm. 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 And you really covered it in there. We start picking up the voice usually of the person that rejected us most, which Mm -hmm. in many cases is our parents. And that becomes our own self-talk voice. It becomes the attitude we carry around to ourselves, you know, um, especially kids who were nurtured or loved as kids. It is so hard for them. There's so much shame that comes with not having been loved and accepted Mm. by our parents. It's a deep permeating shame that is beyond our ability to deal with. Mm. Mm. We we don't know how. No one has ever taught us. We've never experienced that. Many of us have never experienced a mother's love, not even for a couple minutes, or a father's love, either one. And that can be, but on the other hand, that becomes our path this lifetime. Mm. We were born in it. It becomes our path to reconcile that Mm. and hopefully not to do it to our own children, but they're still going to have their own path Mm. at some point along the line. But it is, um, it's, it's, it's a pretty interesting journey, but at first we can have that same reaction to ourselves that maybe even our parents had. I don't know mm. how to love myself. Just yeah. I'm going to reject myself. I'm going to do my duties to myself. I'm going to be a very responsible human and I'll be good to other people. But when it comes to being good to ourselves, we, mm-hmm. it, it can, we don't get it. We don't get what that means or what it would feel like or what it would even be like because we've not experienced that. Yes. Yes. So how does, how, how, how does one make the shift? Because you talked about the cure for codependency being, you know, the self-compassion, the self-love. But if, let's say, if I haven't experienced that, I'm listening to this conversation, I'm at Melody, but I haven't experienced that feeling of being accepted and nurtured and loved by my parents. And so I don't have a reference. I I don't know what it is. I know I should, but I don't have a reference. And I certainly don't feel like, lovable and and i actually hate parts of myself and who, mm-hmm. how i look and what i do and some of my behaviors so how do you make how does someone connect well 
with me, I did this. I, I, I did some tough love on myself. Mm. I'm like, Melody, you've um, nurtured, coddled, had compassion for and loved all these other people. Mm. Okay. You're just going to do those same behaviors to yourself now. Mm. And then we go on the journey of seeing what that looks and feels like of being understanding of being compassionate with of accepting ourselves and of catching ourselves when we find ourselves talking or thinking so horribly about ourselves. Mm. And we stop the same way we would with like a young child. Um, if you've ever been a parent, most of us are really great at parenting and loving, but we need to start doing that to ourselves. Yes. And it's, it's an attitude shift. It's mm. um, coming home. It's coming mm. home to ourselves instead of finding it so horribly outrageous mm-hmm. to be is at it, peace. Does it start ourselves. with a choice? Is it a choice? I'm, it's, a de- to? it's a decision. And I think, it's something we lean into. Mm. We lean into with intention and the path unfolds for doing it. And it does take consciousness too. We need to stay conscious about how we're talking to ourselves, what we're doing, how we're feeling about ourselves, Mm. how we're treating ourselves. I mean, especially having worked in recovery for so long, Mm. I can take, an inordinate amount of abuse from other people. You know, you do that as as a therapist sometimes, especially if you're working in a treatment center. It's learning to not tolerate that anymore. And for some of us, it can be so habitual to tolerate mistreatment from other people because we've done it all our lives. We know we can handle it. We're tough. We're strong. We can take it. But it keeps us always on guard. And like you said in, in your podcast about rejection, mm. we develop false personas that we present to the world about who we are. This person that can take it, that's always nice, that's mm-hmm. always cordial, that's always helpful, that's always doing what other people want us to do. And that becomes the persona for survival that we took on. We need to sort how we're going to let go of that and start giving that good stuff, some of it anyway, to ourselves. Mm. Um, we, I'm going to use a comparison to a cup. A cup, yeah. A cup. We're like cups. We hold everything that's happened to us, our beliefs, our feelings, our false identities, all of that. And within this, we have, I would say, it's our cup of love. And if our cup of love is filled with self-hate and doubt and ignorance of self, when we go to get in a relationship, we've got a really messed up cup we're presenting to people. And somehow the journey needs to be, the journey is, making sure the best we can that our cup Mm. is clear and it's filled with love, that we're not trying to make up for what we didn't get as kids. We're not trying to make our home in someone else. We know our home is with ourselves. We've made peace with ourselves, and we learn to pause. We learn to take time out. 
We learn to take time out before we say yes. We learn to take time out before we respond in anger, before we get into something. We learn the power of the pause. We don't have to talk all the time. That's beautiful. Well, and it's a journey. It's going to be experiential and different for each of us. Mm -hmm. I call it our path to well-being. Mm-hmm. And it will unfold before our eyes if that's our intention to find it and to stay mm-hmm. on it. And it, it's a gentle path. It's a very yeah, it's gentle, a gentle path. Is is there anything that someone can do if they maybe they're okay? They're talk. They're shifting their relationship with their self talk, and but but they. they they say, okay, Melody, I, I, I still, I don't feel it though. I, I don't, feel, I'm, I'm saying the words to myself, but I don't feel the self-loving. I don't feel the compassion. I mean, I'm going through the motions and going through the words and the affirmations. But I, I, I don't feel it. Keep at it. Keep at it. Keep, keep at it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The feelings aren't as important as the behaviors in our intentions. And we may not feel it all the time, but I promise if we keep, and when I talk about self-love, I'm not talking about narcissism. I'm not talking Mm. about blustering. I'm not talking about all the stuff we identify that's obnoxious about loving ourselves. I'm talking about, it's a quiet, humble, all embracing kind of a thing the way we would with a a brand new baby or a young child or a pet. Maybe we don't have kids, but we can identify to loving and caring for a pet and just that acceptance as is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And we so rarely give that to ourselves. So so rarely give that unconditional acceptance to ourselves. You know, we always want more. Why can't I do more? Why can't I look better? Why can't I be better? Why can't I? Why can't I? And we don't stop and realize that um, we're enough. I think that's one of the biggest things that all this crap has taught us is that we're not enough. That somehow we're going to look into this inside and we're going to come up deficient. That's not Mm -hmm. the case. We are enough. Each of us is enough. We're fit for life. We're Mm -hmm. fit for love. Mm -hmm. We're fit for whatever comes onto our path mm. and we can do our best. We give it a go. We don't have to do it perfectly and we can give ourselves room to move, to grow, to make mistakes, to do all the things real humans need to do to live on this planet yes. without making mistakes. We're never going to learn anything. Are we? Mm-hmm. What about, you know, cause sometimes it, it can be really, difficult to love ourselves because we look back and, and and we look back at things we've done, right? Like betraying a friend, cheating on a wife, cheating on a husband, you know, real things. And, and then we use that as evidence as to why we, we don't deserve love or compassion. And, and so if someone is looking at um, a bunch of events from their life, that they did because they felt in that moment they were. Right. Mean. They were acting out their own. Yeah, self and, and, they, and, and they say to you, look, look, 
Melody, I really did some shit in my part. I, I actually hurt people and I screwed them over. And, and, and it's like, I, I, I can't forgive that, you know? And, and how do they move into forgiveness of themselves? I heard a really interesting definition of forgiveness and it okay. simplifies it to acceptance. Mm. But we've all done things. Some people are better at hiding them. Yeah. Some of us not so much. And one one thing that the 12-step programs offer that's very helpful for mm. people that that have a heart that are really carrying around this huge bag of guilt about the things they've done is the fourth and fifth steps. You know, if there's if we have guilt and if we've harmed people and it really bothers us. It's very helpful to make an amends, a sincere mm. amends. Um, sometimes it's not so helpful. So we're left alone just to resolve it within myself. But I pretty much guarantee, you know, I've been watching a lot of YouTube lately. Mm -hmm. There's nothing we can do that other people haven't done. Haven't done. Right. <laughs> yeah. Pretty, that's a pretty surefire guarantee. Yeah. <laughs> it's been I mean, done already. Yeah, we're humans and we don't want to keep doing things and hurting people, but we've all done that. We need to put that down. We need to put mm. that whole bag down. It's going to keep us victims. Mm. It's going to become our story. And we want to write a new story, don't we? Mm. Got it. Talk, talk a bit about the PTSD part as it relates to codependency, because you, you mentioned that and... Uh, I'd love to kind of see, you said in your updated version, you, you saw there was a connection, correlation. I did. I'd love in, to hear about that. In 1990, uh, four or five years after I wrote Codependent No More, my son went skiing with his sister for his 12th birthday, and he never came home. He hit his head on a mogul and died on the slopes. That... Um, your son. Yeah, Shane. That triggered so much PTSD. I didn't even know I had it. And I had PTSD from other events in my life, but I just, I thought that's how everyone felt, you know, with like so much anxiety. And I, I was what I think they now call them high functioning anxiety people. Mm. I don't know. We have labels <clears throat> for everything now, but um I had a lot of anxiety and I had been through other traumatic events, but nothing, nothing ever as traumatic mm. as losing my son in one moment. Mm. Um, and then I still didn't know I had PTSD. I mean, I knew I had grief um, and I also had a daughter to take care of, but, and then some other events happened that I will be writing about in my next book called um, living by spirit. Hmm. I, I'm very excited to do that one. But I didn't know I had PTSD. I mean, well, I did. I went to a therapist and they taught me about tapping. But tapping, I mean, I had so much grief and I had so much pain. There was just no way for that to come out. So I moved, I scooped up my daughter. We moved out to California. I got got her through high school. She was on her path. She got married. And I just started traveling all over the world. I mean, mm. I didn't want to sit around with empty nests 
syndrome. I wanted, I I wanted to do something and to keep moving, but I still had no idea about this anxiety, this PTSD, this extreme Mm. angst that was always running about inside me and just like driving me uh, sometimes less, sometimes more. So I'm a little embarrassed to say that it was only six, seven years ago that I started making a commitment to a serious meditation practice. Mm. Um, Twice a day, 20 minutes each time, transcendental meditation with a mantra. And that that is changing me. It's changing my life. I think many people and myself included, we want, we want Mm. instant fixes. Yes. Yeah. So true. And I don't think that's the way we heal. We heal little by slowly. The The way a flower grows, you know, one day it peaks its head up. Mm. A few days later, we may see it up a couple inches. The, the one thing, that we can't see as human beings. We can't see ourselves grow. Mm-hmm. We can't, it, even if we have a baby, if we sit and stare at that baby, we'll never <laughs> see it grow. We it just grow, grow in front of us. It's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's very important to be gentle with ourselves about our growth and our change. So maybe, maybe check in to see how much we've grown every year. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And not every moment, yeah. but it does take a commitment and it does take mindfulness. And, and for me, meditation, especially during all the craziness, that's, mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of nutters out there now, mm-hmm. you know, um, taking the time to meditate every day mm-hmm. is the one thing I think is an absolute must mm-hmm. for anyone with codependency or anxiety issues. Yes. Mm-hmm. Somehow when, when I've meditated properly, I can feel the change in my the brain. brain after 20 yeah. minutes when, when I click mm. and I relax. And that's a pretty amazing feeling. And then we know what to do next. It taps us, it taps me, it taps us into our intuition, our sense of knowingness, that part that will guide us mm. to our path of well-being. Uh, and this might sound a little mystical and woo-woo, but I, I absolutely believe it's true. I mean, I've stumbled my way through most of life. Wow. <laughs> searching for and ultimately finding my path to well-being over and over. And um, surrender. You you talked about surrender in that mm. podcast in, mm. or in your books. You wrote a book about the magic yes. of surrender, didn't you? Yes, I And did. that is being in resistance is such a sign of um, anxiety, PTSD, mm. and that fight we're in with life because we believe we have to control it. Mm-hmm. If we don't control it, it's going to get away from us. We're going to be hurt again. We're going to get betrayed again. We're always on guard trying to control it. And being not codependent is the absolute opposite of control because the truth is we can't control anything, mm. especially other mm. humans. Mm-hmm. But we can't control the course of events in life. We don't get to control timing. 
none of that's our business. How, how much of life do you feel we're in control of? Because, you know, the, the self-help field, there's so much talk about. You control your life and you make your life happen and the law of attraction and manifest your life and thoughts become things and project your thoughts. And so you master of your own destiny. And, and I'm just, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Like, how much are we in control of, of our of, of our manifestation of what we manifest, of our success? Not as much probably as we'd like to think, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but on a gentler, on a quieter level, we can't control outcomes. Mm. We can't, we have no control over outcomes. We can't control other people. Mm. You know, that's a total illusion. Most of us are very fortunate if we can gain mastery over ourselves. <laughs> so once we get that down, then we can start controlling other people, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I love what you said, though, about, about the, the, the gentleness and, and that the growth isn't, it's not overnight. It's not like a magic bullet. It, it, it's, it's just... A little bit, a little bit, a little bit, a little, little bit. by slowly, a little by slowly. And I think that's, that's so important for people to hear because I think, you know, culture that everything is on speed and, you know, 140 characters, Instagram, 20 second post. We want everything so fast. We want the result now. Then we do some plant medicine and get enlightened all of a sudden, rather than the daily cultivation, the daily so, practice, the daily yeah. practice, yeah, the daily practice. I, I know our daily practices are so important mm. and we could start with those. One of the things I did, I, I always, when my PTSD was controlling me, I was always on a plane somewhere. I was always going, going, going somewhere because mm. stopping meant going within. Mm-hmm. And that's what we need to do. We need to go within. Mm. So least- when, when, when oh. someone is like, let's say someone is feeling anxiety, like <gasps> uh, I, I, I'm feeling the anxiety in my body, I'm feeling it, I'm feeling it. It's, 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 it. What could they do in that moment where they're, they're, they're in the throes of it? It doesn't have to be an anxiety attack. It just might be like, I'm feeling anxious about my boyfriend not calling. I'm feeling anxious about, you know, paying my rent, but, but they're really feeling it and it feels uncomfortable. And then maybe they, so as they feel it in their body, they're present to it. What, what do they do? Well, I, w- I would start with, and each person is going to have different things mm-hmm. that minister to their anxiety better than others. Mm-hmm. I need connection with nature. I must have that to discharge my anxiety. Mm. Um whether it's going out front and looking at my garden or going to the beach or going for a walk or looking at the tree across the street or keeping things in my house that remind me of nature, anything that will calm me. And meditation, we can meditate on the spot if we need to. And our breathing practices will help too. If we learn how to breathe, how to breathe, belly breathe, that can be very helpful in quelling anxiety, the stuff that gets us, like you say, like that, Mm -hmm. to calm down. Um, Meditation is still the best. Mm -hmm. I haven't found anything like meditation for truly dispelling anxiety. Another, I mean, this is kind of a woo-woo trick, but- um, I love it, love to hear it. 
but Torellis and and he's uh, um, the osteopath that works on my spine. He discharges his energy into a stone that he holds in his hand because then he's not, and, and so I've started doing that, carrying a stone around a little bit and just, Hey, I'm going to put, because Hmm. energy has to go somewhere. Yes. Yes. So if we can get that energy out of ourselves, Hmm. baths with mineral salts Hmm. are so helpful for dispelling anxiety. Um, A 20 minute bath with um, some Hmm. good salts in it. And we won't be anxious, at least not the rest of that day. Mm. Hmm. Trying to think. Those are the main things. Mm. I mean, I don't, I don't have any earth-shaking news, but mm. we have to do them. It doesn't help us if we think about doing it. We have to actually yeah. like turn that app on our phone and do a few breathing exercises mm-hmm. or meditate or put the salts in the bathtub and get our butts in there and take <laughs> a bath and calm down. We have to learn to believe we deserve to be calmed down mm-hmm. the same way we would treat a young child or a pet. You know, mm-hmm. they don't deserve to be that anxious. They need to be calmed. They need to be soothed. We need to make soothing ourselves a priority. You know, and with that pet, we do it. Yeah. Even if we feel like it or not, right. With tired. We do. I know. Or with the kid, I know I have a rabbit and (laughs) if my rabbit needs something, I take care of her. Uh, Right. Right. What, what has been the, maybe some advice you could give parents to raise uh, healthy children in a way that might help regards codependency what, what what are some things that a parent can do to provide that space so that a child can grow healthily without being codependent that you've learned what they really need to do is for them to not be codependent because our kids will do what we do not what we say mm-hmm. but setting boundaries with kids helps kids feel far more secure if they know the limits and if they know the parents aren't kidding about the limits, if they have nurturing, compassionate parents, but not parents that enable them. Children need, they need to learn cause and effect. Mm. Anyone that doesn't know cause and effect is going to have a lot of anxiety. Can you speak more about that? Like what, what does that look like? Cause and effect. With a, with a child so that we can have some, because that, that people might interpret what that mean, might mean differently. I'd, I'd love for you to maybe give a few healthy examples in terms of parenting and that would, maybe a scenario. That would mean letting our kids know that if they don't do something and they've been told that if they don't do that, if they don't do A, B is going to happen. But then we never do B. Right. And B might be, I'm going to take your phone away. Um, you're not going to go out this weekend. You're not going to get your allowance. That B has to actually happen. Mm. Otherwise, cause and effect won't seem real to them, even when they get out in the world. The other thing, and I'm, I'm, not, an, I'm not by any means an expert on this. Um, but it seems to me like many people are a little bit disassociated from reality right now Mm. in our world. And 
all these things recording everything we do mm. and all these people still thinking they can get away with murder. I mean, that doesn't even make sense anymore. If we do A, B is going to happen. If we don't work, we're not going to make money. If we don't pay our bills, we're going to lose services. If we need help and don't ask for it, mm. we're going to suffer. I mean, our behaviors have consequences for, yes. for, for, for good and for ill. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so allowing that to be, letting that be clear. Letting that be clear and doing our part to keep it clear. With our kids, if we say we're going to do something, do it, whether it's um, I'll give you an example from my own life. And it's not easy. It's not easy enforcing boundaries. But after my son's death and then Nicole and I moving completely, that she's my daughter across country. Mm. I was taking care of her financially for a while. And I know this is a problem among yeah. Many people yeah. in our world right now is very yes. entitled kids. And so when she turned 21, I started telling her in one year, I am not giving you any monthly allowance anymore. Mm. It's done. And so for one year, I told her every month in one year, in 11 months, in 10 months, the faucet is turned off. Mm. And so then when that time came, I turned the faucet off. You did it. I did it. And it was the hardest thing I've ever done. Not because it was hard for me to do it. It was because she just pounded on that boundary relentlessly. Uh -huh. You know, because I had taken care of her and she said, all my friends, are their parents take care of them. They give them money, mm. blah, blah, blah. I said, well, I don't care. <laughs> and we, I was at her birthday party. Saturday night. And she so profusely thanked me for that. She said, I have so many friends that were never forced to work for a living. Right. That right. didn't have to earn their money. Yeah. And she said, I did. And she said, now I know the liberation, the freedom that comes mm -hmm. from making a career, paying your own way, not expecting a man or any other human to take care of you and what a gift that is in my life. And I said, you're welcome. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. um, it's, what about, the, what about the guilt? Cause I think many, you know, mothers, fathers too, but, but parents feel the, the guilt of turning that faucet off, especially, especially if let's say the mother or the parent, they feel that they weren't a good parent in, in, in the youth. So now they feel a sort of guilt. They're trying to make they, up for they're it. They're trying yeah. to make up for it. Right. And yeah. so how, how, how to deal with the guilt? Get over feels... it. Get over it. <laughs> <laughs> not seriously. Get over the guilt. It's not uh -huh. real. Um, we're hurting our kids so much more. Wow. Mm -hmm. By enabling them to not be responsible for themselves. That's so true. So true. And learn what it means to find a career. I mean, if they if they don't have to work, they're never going to find their soul, mm -hmm. are they? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Now, that's another thing parents can do, especially today. And I think that life maybe well, 
I mean, and there, there's two different kinds. You have the people that have nots, let's call them that, the people that that don't have the money, that don't have the money for food. And the kids have to go out and work and give the money to the family. That's a different scenario. But we have a lot of people that are pretty successful in our world now. And those are the kids that are getting um, harmed by this entitlement. And it's so rampant. I mean, I can, I, you know, during COVID, I can see, be good to your kids and, having their back we need to always have our kids back backs but um supporting them their entire lives and turning them into princes and princesses doesn't work it, it doesn't work it's not doesn't good for work. them it's going to hurt them it's going to hurt them a lot mm-hmm. so that's another thing they can do and they can do it in love they can do it with as much sense of stability and security as they have but you know these kids are clever they will survive we're not hurting them uh, they right. and they know very young from the time they're two or three they know mm. how to work us mm. they're they're mm. so much smarter than we think mm. yeah mm. Mm. beautiful beautiful well um a few more questions melody if it's okay i'm curious about um just sort of change tracks a bit it's kind of a selfish question for me now is, is in terms of like, you've written books, you're writing another book. How do you, how, how do you write? What is your creative process? You know, I write books, but you know, honestly, I, I can't say I enjoy the process of writing. Um, it's not my most enjoyable process to sit down and write. I'd rather just talk and, and just, you know, have conversations. But I'm just curious, like writing, is there something you do? Is there a way you tap in? Is there a way you connect? Is there a process you have to stay in a creative zone? Well, I'm, I'm not a writer who writes every day. Uh-huh. I write when I have something to say and when it's time. Because if you're sitting down to write and you don't have anything to say, you're going to feel very frustrated, aren't you? Mm-hmm. And for me, the first part is the idea. Getting the idea, putting it through my entire screening process and deciding whether or not it's worthy, whether it's the right idea for me, whether I'm, whether my heart's in it, whether I have something of value to say about it. And I've written books that I knew weren't going to sell that many copies, but I believe they had value at that time. Mm. So first I get the idea. And then in most cases, I think writing is like um, baking bread. You have to let it rise. I mean, I I don't believe in getting an idea and just whipping that puppy out. The best ideas are are ideas that have time to rise, that get beat down, that rise some more. And by the time I write them, I know what I want. I mean, what I want to say is is like bubbling out of me. And then I create the space where when I'm writing, that's all I'm doing is writing. I'm not interrupting it. I, I allow myself to go into that zone and stay there because I love being in that zone and it's magical and the stories I need and everything I need and the people I need come to me. I mean, it dances before me. It is truly entering into the mystery of the unknown Mm. and letting it spring forth for me. I love, I do, I do so love writing. 
when I have something to say. When you have something to say, yeah. When I have something to say, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Oh, and I also believe in editing. Mm -hmm. I will probably edit anything I turn in 40 to 50 times. I just tinker until every word, every nuance, every feeling feels right. I, I love it. To me, it's like polishing a stone. Wow. It so I don't refining. On. Yeah. So refining. I don't catch on anything. Yeah. Um, and I do so love the act of writing. Mm. I, I, I feel closer to the angels, to spirit, to everything divine in life when I'm in that state and I'm writing. Wow. Wow. Hmm. <laughs> You're making me want to write now, <laughs> which is a good thing, you know? I know. Really For years, my, my daughter is also a writer, although she doesn't write the same things I do. Yeah. But her favorite thing was, I like having written. Yes. <laughs> I like the, the, the finished product. <laughs> yeah. When but, you look at the, the, the self-help field now, um, you know, because your book came out, what, 36 years ago, 37 mm -hmm. years ago, and, and, and so much has changed. And even self-help, personal development, the industry's changed with YouTube and technology and, 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 you know, now everybody's a life coach all of a sudden. They were working Starbucks a week last weekend and now they're a life coach, right? I, and, I know, I know, I know. And, I and know. so I, I would love to just, from your experience and perspective, just I'm curious what your perception, perspective, opinion is of the industry and the personal development industry. Like, what do you see? What, what, what's your observation? What's, what's the state of it? Hmm. I'm not sure you want to know. <laughs> I want to know. This is why I'm asking. I'm very curious. I honest think, opinion. I think it's been disrupted a bit. And I'm a little, I have nothing against life coaches. I think mm -hmm. some of them are wonderful. But I've had run-ins with, I mean, so many of, the, not so many, um, I had one life coach, mm. like, take my book, Codependent No More, and then try and pass it off as their own. I have two other people who are life coaches who have put the title Codependent No More on their books and are, you know, if I look up my book on Amazon, their books come up. Wow, wow. So, I mean, and certainly everyone has a right to do as they see fit. I mean, within the laws of, of the land. Mm -hmm. But I don't know what people who don't have a lot of money are doing to get help right now. I honestly mm -hmm. don't. Mm -hmm. I think getting proper help for what we call mental health conditions is very difficult unless you're rich, mm -hmm. especially for kids teenagers we need to make radical changes in what's going on we do um mm -hmm. kids are kids shouldn't have to face being shot when they go to school every day that 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 a kid, if I could give one thing to the children out there it would be that when they're three years old they're trained in transcendental meditation Wow. And they know how to calm themselves and tap in to their soul and figure out the right path for them. Mm. Um, so I don't know how we're going to do it, but somehow we need to get more mental health resources to people. Mm -hmm. 
because they need them and the kids need them. Unless you can afford to spend $10,000 a month to keep your kid in therapy and aftercare, mm. you're kind of screwed as a parent. Mm. There's just, there's, and please, if I'm wrong, contact me. Let me know if you have a great program for young people. But mm, needs to change. It, it yeah. does need to change. Yeah, needs to change. Mm. I don't know what we're going to do about it or where we're going to go, but I believe in people and I believe if, if it's our intention to make the mm -hmm. world a healthier, safer place for everyone, we can do that one step at a time. We well, one of the things I see that's so problematic is that um, if an organization does do well, they become a, like a billionaire corporation and they just... Uh, we have to get our hearts right mm, mm. about what we're doing for people and, yeah. and when and why and how much the money matters. Mm -hmm. And I mean, because it does matter. We all need to get paid for what we do, but everything is, is, is topsy turvy right now. And, and it doesn't mm -hmm. feel right. I don't know how people trust the resources they're using. If they just find a life coach online. Yeah. How, did, how did they trust that? How did they yeah. know they're getting good information? Yeah, I agree. I agree. Mm. Mm. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm not up here to call people out. I think we need to do far less calling people out. We need to start calling them in. Mm. We need to start calling them in because we're all in this together. Got and we, we need to, you know, figure out a way to start being able to talk to each other again, don't we? Yes, yes. So important. Final question. All right. Um, and you've shared a lot today, so really appreciate that. Uh, if there were, if you were to reflect on your entire life, everything you've lived, author, mother, ups, downs, if you were to think of the three most, and this doesn't have to be long, but the three most important impactful life lessons, the wisdoms that you've learned in life, that if you feel like, okay, you could only pass these three keys to your children and grandchildren, the next generation, and these three life lessons would involve the consciousness of the next generation the most. Um, what are the three things you'd pass on lessons from your life to the next generation? I've already mentioned one, and that okay. is meditation. Meditation. I would start my kids in meditation when they were three <laughs> and I would give that gift to them so that they, because if we, if we have any control over everything, it's the things we do to master our own bodies and our own selves on yes. this planet. Yes. So I, I would have every child in meditation, Beautiful. at least offer it. We can't make them do it, but we can offer it to them and um, children thrive mm. with meditation. Yeah. Meditation is number one. What else would I give them? I would give, you know, love never hurts. Not rescuing, mm. love. So much love and so much compassion. Mm. Love is the foundation. And laughter. Mm -hmm. Laughter has been a healing balm for my daughter and I. We've been on most of this journey alone together her and i with wow. you know burying shane moving out here starting new lives 
Um, I mean, she lives completely across LA from me. Mm. But she has this beautiful gift of laughter. And, and I'm, I'm glad I gave that to her. Mm. Or, or she lived in an environment where it was present. Mm-hmm. I wish I had something more profound. Meditation. <laughs> Meditation and love. love and laughter. I think that hits the nail on the head, Melody. It's right. uh, some beautiful, beautiful ideas. And I just love the way you've simplified it as well. Um, no fluff, no BS, keeping it really real. What's the best way people can find out about you and your work? What's the best website? I posted my first um, TikTok today. Oh, you beat me to it. I have not even posted a TikTok yet. <laughs> it was about um, when I took my uh, best friend's nephew out to the... Um, aquarium of the pacific and we met our penguin for the first time mm-hmm. so you can't really find me there i have a website but that's because my life is in a process of change my website will be changing it's melodybeauty.com great we'll post that in the show notes all right and if you see any other postings out there they're by my web teams you're not really by me awesome so melodybeauty.com your new tiktok uh, is available for some some video content, and I'd also just encourage everyone to to get your books. You know, that's the best no way more. they can get to know me. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite books: Codependent No More, Language of Letting Go. That's yes. actually my all time favorite. Wow, beautiful! Um, and Watch for Living by Spirit when it comes out. Can't wait for that one. That, that sounds exciting. I Melody, know. thank you so much for just your grace and your generosity and just sharing so openly. Really appreciate you. Um, everyone, check out Melody's amazing work, melodybt.com. Go get her books. And let's uh, all be on the lookout for the new book, Living by Spirit. Um, send me an email, folks, coopblackson at coopblackson.com. I'd love to hear your key takeaways from today's episode. Share this episode with anyone in your life, everyone and anyone in your life you feel would benefit and uh, post on social media. Catch you next week. Melody, thank you so much. Big hugs, you, everybody. Love you me. have so much light in your uh, heart. Thank you. You're so filled with light. Thank you for sharing it. Thank you. Appreciate you, Melody. See you next week, everybody. Bless you. If you've enjoyed this episode of Soul Talk, please do share the podcast with all of your friends. Let everyone know and make sure you download Soul Talk today. I'm looking forward to next week where I'll get to share more inspiration with you. Meanwhile, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or social media. You can find out more about my work at www.coopblackson.com. If you feel ready to take your life to the next level, join me at my exclusive event in Bali, www.boundlessblissbali.com, where you can find out more and apply. Also, make sure to remember to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment at coopblackson.com. Sending you all big hugs and love now.